every time. I love that. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. Hey, Mac and Kristen, thanks so much for sharing. I know you both were nervous, and uh, we just appreciate you letting us have a picture into what was uh, going on in Haiti. It really was a great trip. I'm so glad to be back with all you guys, being out the last two Sundays on on that mission trip. Um, I missed y'all, just as Jason was saying, missed you, y'all. So if I haven't a chance to meet you yet, perhaps you've been here the first time over the last couple of weeks. My name's Jake, and I am one of the pastors here at Midtown, and we're getting to continue a series that we started uh, three weeks ago. This will be the fourth week in this series on the series out of the book of Ruth, and we're actually wrapping up the series today. And I, and I hope that y'all have really enjoyed this series, that God's been using it to encourage your faith and, and to uh, grow your love for him. It's been really impactful for me. I really loved getting to listen to Justin's last two uh, messages. You can find them on our website. But I got to listen to those on my flight from Miami back to Austin after, uh, after the trip and just was really encouraged by how God used Justin and what uh, he was saying out, out of the chapters two and three out of Ruth and just like personally just very encouraged my faith. And so I hope that's having the same impact on you because like I love this book. I love this book because there's a couple of things. There's lots of reasons why, but a couple of things that really impact me right now is one in the book of Ruth. What we get to see is that uh, God is providentially acting in our lives according to his hesed, the kind of key word throughout this book. Hesed means his loyal love, like his loving kindness, his loyal love is kind of the thing, the power of love. That's Huey Lewis. That's why, that's why we called the series this. But that God is providentially acting in our life according to his loving kindness, his loyal love, even when it doesn't feel that way, even when it doesn't look that way. And like to me, guys, personally, that's a big deal. And I think for all of us, if, if if you're a Christian or if you're someone who's not a Christian, you're kind of exploring this and perhaps you look around your life and you think, man, like I don't, I'm not sure that there is a God. And if there is a God, then I'm certainly not sure if he loves me or cares about me or even knows what's going on in my life. Because look at the circumstance of my life. They all seem to point to the fact that there must not be a God. Or if there is a God that he doesn't love me. And like what we saw in the very beginning of the book of Ruth, like with this character, Naomi, when her husband dies and her two sons die. And she says, like, I'm just convinced that God's hand is against me me. And God no longer loves me. And she evaluates and surveys her circumstances and leads her to that conclusion. Like how often we can be in that same spot, right? I think, man, like when I look around, it's just proof that God doesn't love me. And yet as this book unfolds, what we see is that oftentimes we miss the fact that when we look at our circumstances, they seem to cause us to conclude God is not loyal in his love towards us. That where the truth is, is that he is always loyal and his love towards us, and that he's always providentially guiding, governing the events in our life to bring us into this loving relationship with him and to lavish his love on us. And like that is so helpful to know that even when circumstances seem to say that's not true, we can cling to the promises of the character of God that that is absolutely true. Like for Krista and I personally, this week has been a little bit of a test on that. And the book of Ruth, what God's been saying to us in it, has been such an encouragement to us. Because this week, the very first text that I get when I turn my phone on, when we land in Miami. So my phone's been off for a week while being in Haiti. And the very first text I turn on my phone pops up. It's our, my landlord saying, hey, we're not going to be able to renew your lease. And 
Like, we love this house that we've lived in now, almost three years. We, uh, we brought Della home to this house, right? So you got a lot of memories attached to, to this house. And then we've got a lot of neighbors that we have great friendships with, but it feels like there's just a lot of unfinished relationships with our neighbors. And we're like, you know, worried about moving off the street and what will that do? And it's just lots of like, all of a sudden, this sadness and, and like worry. And it's, we find ourselves in one of those moments of, that's like a, can you believe this is happening moment, right? Or I can't believe this is happening moment. But then, like I said, I got to listen to you know, Justin's messages and keep focused on the book of Ruth and, and just the promise that God is providentially at work in our life according to his loving kindness, his loyal love to us, gives us hope when we find ourselves in one of those I can't believe this is happening moments. It gives us hope to believe that this will soon turn out to be one of those as it turns out moments that Justin talked about out of chapter two, where you see like, okay, at that point in time, I just had no idea that this would be God at work to do something good and to show his love to me. But I have hope because that's who God is. That he is a God of steadfast love. That he's at work in our lives to bring about and act according to his Love and kindness. And so I can enter into this, I can't believe this happening moment with the faith of this is going to be an as it turned out moment. And that helps. And it helps all of us if we can grasp on that. And I hope that that's one of the things that God is teaching us and encouraging our faith according to as we study this book. The other thing I love about the book of Ruth too, and we're going to get into it as we look at chapter four this morning, but is that this story, it helps us see just the power of love, specifically the power of God's loyal love to redeem and change lives. And, and this is where it gets practical for us, is that he also wants to extend his loyal love through people to others, to those that are broken. Like, he wants to and can use us to extend his loyal love to people who are in broken conditions so that their lives can be changed and redeemed. And like, I just love that that's true, that God not only has loyal love for us, but he invites us to partner with him to be his means by which he will extend loyal love to others. And when we allow to him to partner with, uh, allow him to use us in that way, we choose to partner with him in that way, like we get to be the means by which he brings about redemption and change lives in other people's lives. It's, it's just an incredible privilege, and it's, it's so fun. <laughs> like it really is, it's awesome. We're going to get to see that at play in chapter 4 this morning. And so uh, I want you to open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. If you, you brought your Bibles with you, Ruth's near the beginning of the Old Testament, seventh book of the Bible, and a short little book after the book of Judges. And as y'all are turning there, let me just quickly remind y'all of kind of what's happened in this book. Perhaps uh, just catch you up if you haven't been here with us throughout the series. In Ruth chapter 1, what you see is that this book takes place this story takes place in the period of time of Israel called the Judges, where there was no king and everyone was just doing whatever they pleased. It was like the, the wild, wild west of the nation of Israel, right? And things were bad. People were running from God, not obeying God. God would bring discipline to the, to the people, and then he'd bring a judge that would free the people and bring them back to God, and they'd follow God for a little bit, and then they'd go their own way, and there's just this horrible cycle, uh, just bad, bad, bad. But that's where this story, this beautiful story, takes place. But because it's during that time, it begins with there's a famine in the land, part of God's judgment on the nation of Israel for not following him and, and honoring him. And so there's this family, the family of Elimelech. Elimelech's the husband, Naomi's the wife, his two sons. 
Elimelech says, okay, we got to get out of here. There's no food. We're not going to survive. We're not going to live if we stay here. So they decide to leave the promised land and go to the, the, the nation of Moab. So they travel to Moab, but ironically, they go there to stay alive. But when they get there, everybody dies except Naomi. It's really like, it's really sad. Very tragic. First, Elimelech dies. Then, uh, Naomi's two sons, they both marry eventually. And, uh, they're, you know, they're intact for, families intact for about 10 years. But then after 10 years, both sons die. And so now Naomi is in a strange land, widowed, and has two widowed daughter-in-laws, and things are incredibly dire for her. And that's where she makes the conclusion, man, God must not love me. He must not have anything to do with me. His hand is against me. And she decides, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, back to the nation of Israel, the village where she was from, because she had heard the famine had lifted. So she heads back. And much to her surprise, and even with much of her persuade against her persuading this not to happen, one of her daughter-in-laws, the daughter-in-law Ruth, decides to come with Naomi. And an incredible act of loyal love, and just a beautiful picture of God's love for us displayed through Ruth's love for her mother-in-law, Ruth says to Naomi, hey, I'm going to stay with you. Like Wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever you stay, I stay. When you die, not even death will separate you from me. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Just a beautiful picture of loyal love. She stays with Naomi. But Naomi, when she gets to Bethlehem, she sees all of her old friends, small town. They all remember her. And then she shows up and they all run up. What's been going on in the last 10 years? They don't have Facebook to check up, know what's going on in her life, right? And so like, what's been going on? And she says, hey, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means call me bitter. Because I am very bitter. See, because when I left Bethlehem, I left full. I had a husband. I had two sons. Now I'm returning empty. My, son, my husband's dead. My sons are dead. I'm a widow. No land, no place, no provision, no security. And the loves of my lives are gone. Call me bitter. God's hand is against me. So that's chapter one, right? Chapter two is where we get to see Ruth at work. God extending his loyal love providentially to Naomi and to Ruth as well by help, by Ruth setting out to go try to find food to provide for her Naomi. And so she starts showing up in these fields to see if she could just gather what's left over in these fields for food. And she just so happens, which there's many comments like that throughout the book of Ruth, perhaps you picked on it, which are all clues, hints to us to the providence of God, that what often looks like coincidence to us is not coincidental because there's a sovereign God who's in control of all things. And so when we say it just so happened, it really means God orchestrated governing the things in our life that this would take place. And it just so happened, or God and his providence made it so that Ruth would begin working the field of this guy named Boaz. And Boaz, as it just so happened, by the providence of God, acting according to God's loyal love, Boaz is a godly man who's also a relative of Elimelech. And that's important because that means Boaz is a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer. And then this is a little bit of Israelite law for us, but in the Leverite law, it tells us that, that close kinsmen or relatives had this opportunity and a responsibility to provide for family members, specifically and especially widows of, of relatives, so that the widows would be taken care for, provided for, and have some sense of security. And so just so happened that Ruth is at a kinsman redeemer's land. And just so happens that Boaz shows up when Ruth's there. And just so happens that Boaz takes notice of Ruth. 
and he makes sure that she's provided for. And he says, you can have all the, like, all the food you need. Take it back to Naomi. I'm going to make sure you're cared for. You work our field until the end of the barley harvest. It's all good. And like this incredible love that Boaz shows Ruth, it's just, it's just powerful. It's awesome. And you also get a hint that there might be something going on relationally and perhaps even a spark of interest of, that could lead to marriage between Ruth and Boaz. But Boaz is just a dude. And as guys often do, they're just clueless to the relational elements are going on. So Ruth continues working this, this field during the whole barley harvest. And they had this great interaction initially. But then you don't see any other interaction between Boaz and Ruth for the rest of the harvest. So the harvest is coming to an end. And in chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, hey, like, Boaz hasn't interacted with you anymore. Like, what's been going on? She's Ruth's like, nothing's going on. Like, she's, he's providing for us, but I'm not seeing him. And Naomi's like, hey, we got to get you married. Like, we're going to start, let's, I got a plan to get you married. Here's what you need to do. And so she, she concocts this plan for Ruth to get noticed again by Boaz and have this conversation with Boaz where Ruth can let Boaz know, hey, if you're interested, if you're willing to fulfill the duty of the kinsman redeemer, I'd love for you to marry me. So they have this interaction in chapter 3 where it ends with Boaz saying, yeah, I'm interested. However, I know that there's an even closer kinsman redeemer. There's a closer relative who would have the, should have the first opportunity to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer to you and to the house of Elimelech. So I need to talk to him first. But if I talk to him and he's unwilling, then I'm in. But that's how chapter 3 kind of ends off. So it's like a little cliffhanger. Like, who's this other guy? and How's this going to play out? And so what we see at the beginning of chapter 4 is Boaz seeking out this other redeemer, this other kinsman redeemer, this other relative to the house of Elimelech. And so let me uh, just read it for us. And uh, what we're going to see in this passage is this is a powerful picture, this awesome picture of loyal love demonstrated by Boaz. And then the second half of this passage, what we're going to see is the power of loyal love. Like how God uses this to have this profound impact on everyone that's touched by it. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of fleshing this out for us. And so let's start with verse 1, chapter 4 of Ruth. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Okay, the gate is like the, it's like a civil court, if you will, at that time, all right? And so it's where a lot of legal transactions would happen. So he goes to the gate, sits down there, and behold, which is another one of those statements throughout the book of Ruth, like, and behold, or as it turns out, it just, just so happens by the providence of God, according to his loyal love, that this guy that he was seeking out walks by. So, and behold, says, uh, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. So he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men, saying, Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, Redeem it. But if you will, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Meaning, there's no other closer relative to redeem it. And after you, it's me. So if you're not going to do it, let me know, because I'm going to do it. And the guy says, um, 
And he said, I will, I will redeem it. Now, this is a kind of interesting curveball in the story because it's like, okay, you, what's this whole thing with Boaz and Ruth? Like, if this guy steps in, then that dies down. And it's like, what's going on here, right? But Boaz wants to make sure that this guy understands all that's going to come with this commitment to redeem the land. And so he kind of pulls something out of his sleeve here in verse 5. It says, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Now let me stop right here. This is a powerful picture of loyal love that we're going to look at here. But it doesn't feel that way initially. This feels like a court transaction. It feels like a business transaction. Like you're going to acquire Ruth, the Moabite. So don't get lost in that. That's part of the cultural stuff going on here. But hang in there. You're going to see this really is just this beautiful action of what ends up being a Boaz on behalf of like loving kindness towards Ruth and the family of Elimelech and Naomi. But it doesn't feel that way. It does not read romantically at all. So just, you know. Keep your hopes down on that side of things. All right. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair, or other translations will say, lest I hinder or jeopardize or ruin my inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Okay, I'm going to talk about what's going on here in just a second. But then they get into uh, this like legal, technical language here. Verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of, of testing in Israel. So like there's a legal thing happening here, right? And then 8. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Thanks for telling us that. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, which are the sons of Elimelech. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, very romantic, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. And from this gate of his native place, you are witnesses to this day. Now, let me stop before I get to verse 11, okay? Uh, this is awesome. But to really capture it, you're going to have to brush up a little bit of your Israelite culture and law understanding. So I'm trying not to get too technical here, but let me just say this, like, Here's what's going on. We know that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, owned a piece of land in Bethlehem. And that this piece of land was actually a part of what was given to his family line all the way from when Joshua divided up the promised land, when the nation of Israel entered the promised land, and they divided up by tribe and clan, and then even to the family. And it was a very big deal to have a part of the land be your family land. And this land would always be passed from the, from the male side, from, from father to son to son to son, you know, on like that. And it was a big deal to have a piece of land. And Limelech had a piece of land. But when he chose to move to Moab, what happens, seems to happen here, is that he sells the land. But that was okay. That was kind of even common practice of that day because there was such a thing. Again, this is a little technical, but such a thing as the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee in Israel was a year that happened every 50 years where all of the land would be re-given back to the original landowners. So if you sold land, when the year of Jubilee came around, you'd get that land back. 
Because it was such a big deal in Israel for you to retain the land that God gave Israel, the promised land. Like, this is a big thing. So they would retain this land. So basically, if Elimelech sold it, it's like he leased the land out for however many years until the year of Jubilee. Okay? Then they go to Moab. Elimelech dies. That's okay. The land will still stay in his family name because he had two sons. But then both of his sons die. And now, since the land would always pass down the male line, there was no one to pass the land to. And this is where things get really bad, because that means Naomi and Ruth, they're not promised land. And that the family name is also going to be cut off. It's going to be wiped away because there's no name to go with that land. Whoever had bought the land from Elimelech when he sold it to go to Moab, they would just get to retain the land at the year of Jubilee. It now increases their inheritance because there's no one to give it back to because the name of Elimelech is gone because there's no more men. Okay? So that's kind of what's happened here. Boaz goes to this guy and says, this, this other redeemer, closer relative, and says, hey, I just want you to know, this land's going to be up, it's up for sale. You should buy it as a close relative. And this guy's thinking, you know what? I should do that because Naomi doesn't have any more sons. And so if I buy this land, then when the year of Jubilee comes, it doesn't go back to the name of Elimelech. It stays with me. So he's in it for himself. He's like, there's a chance for a land grab. Here's a chance for me to be able to increase my name and my significance, my own inheritance. Yeah, yeah. Of course I'll redeem it. And he's very quickly like, yeah, I'll redeem it. So then Boaz is like, no, no, no. I think you might be missing the point of why I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you because we, as relatives, have this responsibility. Again, the Leverite marriage and, and all, of the, all the kind of kinsman-redeemer language in the Old Testament and the expectation of how family would take care of extended family. He said, no, I'm coming to you with that in mind. Like, if you buy the land, we're doing it to pr- actually continue the name of Elimelech. And that with that means then that you would actually take in Naomi and you'd marry Ruth, and you'd actually, the expectation in the Levite marriage was that you would seek to have a son with this widow, with this new wife of yours, Ruth in this case, because if you have a son, then the son will actually take on the name of Elimelech. And if that, na- if that happens, then Elimelech's name will continue. And the land that you purchase would go to the son. And now the guy is thinking, oh man, like I'd I didn't think about that. So like if I put up my money to buy this land and then I have more family to take care of, Naomi and Ruth, and then I have a son with Ruth, then all the land that I purchased then goes to him. That does not sound like a good deal any longer. And so he says, man, I can't do that. That's going to jeopardize my own inheritance. I mean, that's going to impair me. That's, that's not going to help me. No. Why don't you do it, Boaz? Like, notice this guy, just in it for himself. Like, no loyal love at all to be found here. The guy is just thinking, what's in it for me? How can I make my name better, but I don't want to have anything that costs me? I'm just thinking about myself. Now, Boaz, on the other hand, completely different perspective, right? Completely different perspective. He says, no, no, y'all are my witnesses. Like, I will redeem it. And the reason I want to redeem it is so that my relative's name, Elimelech, will continue on. He, you hear, heard him say in like verses 9 and 10, like he says their name, like Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, like their name would continue on to, 
I'm going to marry Ruth so that we can have a son, that their name will continue on, that the land would continue in their name. Like he's thinking about his relatives. He's thinking about others. He's thinking about caring for these two widows. He's thinking about caring about Naomi. He's thinking about caring for Ruth. The guy, at, in, in no sense, is focused on self. He's not in it for himself. This is a powerful picture of loyal love. Loyal love, guys, is selfless love. It's love that, that it says, okay, whatever it takes to give you blessing, that's what I want to do. Loyal love, guys, loyal love is this, is this costly love. Like it's going to cost Boaz a lot. It's going to cost him money. It's going to cost him a chance of his own inheritance, a piece of his own inheritance. He's going to take in more people to care for. Like it's costly, but he's willing to do it. And it's powerful, friends. In fact, just to keep going in the passage, we start getting these pictures of just how powerful loyal love is. The first thing we see is that it's really, it, it, loyal love has this powerful impact on, on the witnesses of loyal love, on the onlookers of loyal love. Like, pay attention to how the guys at the gate, these elders, these witnesses, respond, starting in verse 11. It says this, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, Ruth, May the Lord make her like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, which is another way of saying, hey, like this is awesome. May, may Ruth, your new wife, may y'all have a ton, a ton of kids. Like this is what they're saying. Like me, y'all make like rabbits, right? Like it's just because if y'all are, if y'all are the ones that are having offspring, then we need more people like you in our nation. And so like with Rachel and Leah, where the 12 tribes of Israel came from, they're saying like these, these ladies had an impact on the entire world because of who came from her. We want you guys to have an impact on the entire world from the type of kids that come from you. Because if your kids are like you, we need more of you in this world today. People who show incredible loyal love, like Ruth showed Naomi, like Boaz is showing Ruth. It's like, man, this is incredible. Man, y'all have tons and tons of kids. And then they keep going. They say, um, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephrathah was their, was their tribe. Bethlehem was their city, which is basically saying, hey, we, we want, we want, when people think about Bethlehem, our city, we want them to think about you. We want them to associate the name of Boaz, that your name, your renown would be tied to our city. We want a statue of you in our city because we want people, when they think of Bethlehem, they think that's the town that they love people because Boaz is there. And Boaz is their town hero. He's the man who married the widow from Moab, who took care of his family name at personal cost to self. That's the type of guy we want our whole city to be known by. And then he says, and then they go on, they say, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And Justin mentioned the story of Judah and Tamar last week, and so that spares me from having to get into it because it's a crazy story. Read Genesis 38 if you want something entertaining. And But... What comes from this is that uh, J- Judah and Tamar had a son named Perez. Perez became the most populous family line in all of Judah. So again, these guys are saying, hey, may, we want you to have a ton of kids. And we want you to have influence in our entire tribe. 
We want you to have influence, your influence be felt throughout all of Israel because of the kind of person, the kind of love that you've displayed to the house of Elimelech, to Naomi and to Ruth, and the kind of love that Ruth has displayed to Naomi. We, we need more people like y'all. They're moved. They're moved by this display of loyal love. And guys, friends, can y'all think of a time where you've, been, you've come in contact with an incredible display of sacrificial, selfless love? Can you think of a time? Like, I bet you when you did, it moved you. Tears to your eyes, like stuck with you. I don't have time, but I, I was just thinking about story after story after story this week of that. Of that. And every single time, it's just stuff that sticks with me that just has this profound impact. In fact, I think that Jesus, when he says in John 13, like, the way, that you'll, the way the world will know you're my disciples is by how you love one another, I think this is a part of why that's so important, that we as believers love each other with this kind of reflection of God's loyal love, because when people come in contact with that, they're moved by it. It's powerful. But moving on. And that doesn't just impact the witnesses, that loyal love also redeems broken lives. The God uses loyal love to redeem broken lives. I mean, look at what happens, verse 13, and as the climax of the story. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And this son, guys, this son is, a, is just this powerful tangible expression of God's loyal love to Ruth and to Naomi. Like this is a big deal. Look how people respond. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who loves you with a loyal love, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. That your two sons didn't provide you any grandsons, but this daughter-in-law who when you returned to Bethlehem, you said you were empty. Was, you said you had proof that God's hand was against you, but you weren't even thinking about how Ruth had displayed loyal love to you. And now through Ruth and through Boaz, loyal love to Ruth, God has given you a grandson that you had never had. You are no longer empty. You're, you're better off than seven sons. And all the people are looking into this and just praising God on behalf of what the loyal love that God has shown Naomi and Ruth. I mean, it's just awesome. It's just awesome. He said, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. It's like, like they're just walking around to each other. Like, can you believe this? Like, can you believe what God's done here? Like, Naomi has had a son, has a grandson. Now, can, like, can you believe that all the women neighborhood just chatting up? Because that's what women neighborhood do, right? And so they're just, but they're talking, just praising God. What's going on here? And this is, they named him Obed, which means servant, because this boy would be a servant to his family. He's the redeemer, restorer of life to this family. Let me stop here and just say, the, um, Got so much I want to say. I'm running out of time, so I got to figure out what I what I need to go to here. But God uses the loyal love that Boaz shows Ruth, that Ruth had showed Naomi, to redeem this brokenness that existed when Elimelech died and the two sons died. 
when Boaz said, at cost, personal cost to myself, I'm going to step in and show care to them. God was reflecting and extending his love to this family. And as a result, this family was made whole, was restored, was redeemed. And friends, that's what happens when we extend God's loyal love, the love that he has for us. We extend that to others. God uses that to redeem broken lives. I was talking to Adam this week, and he was talking a story about how his father, Tom Brunson, like this is his story of his family. Like Adam's biological father abandoned his family when he was young. God brought Tom Brunson providentially according, acting according to God's loyal love for Adam and his mom, Karen, and his sister, Amy, brings Tom into their life. Tom is this humble, gentle, godly man. And he marries Karen, and he adopts Adam and Amy. And it just changes the entire trajectory of their entire family story. I think about what the Amados are doing with baby Grace. And, and how God will use the Amados to, to potentially change the entire trajectory of baby Grace's life. I think about how Dustin and Heidi met GW at a bar in 6th Street and couldn't get the guy out of his mind and said, Hey, this homeless man that we had a relationship, that we had a conversation with, that we got to share the gospel and he seemed somewhat interested. I, we got to do something about him. And so they continue to work to get him into a job and into a house and into a church where he comes to know Jesus and he gets a great job and he gets a house and this guy's life has been forever changed. I think about how Sue loved Mary Paulette. And Paulette was a lady that Sue came across who was living in a car on the side of the road in Hyde Park. And Sue meets her and says, like, I got to do something at cost to myself, at sacrifice of time and money. I'm going to take care of this woman. And she does. And she gets her into a house and she gets her medical care and she gets her a job. And we as a church wrap around Paulette and it changed Paulette's life. It did. And that's not to our praise and glory. That's God's loyal love. But God's loyal love extended from us to people, redeems broken lives. It's powerful. One more thing. And it's kind of interesting in a story. But one other thing that happens when you extend loyal love, God's loyal love to others, is it leads to a life of great significance. And this is funny because this feels like a weird motivation, right? Because loyal love is selfless, costly love, and you're not doing it for yourself. And yet it doesn't change the fact that if you extend loyal love to others, God's love to others, it does lead to your name being remembered and having a significant life. So you figure out if that's a motivation to do it or not, but it's just a fact, I mean, you think about people, great people throughout history, William Wilberforce, Dr. Martin Luther King. You think about Mother Teresa. I mean, these are people known for giving, 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 loving people. Why does their name move on? It's not because of how much stuff they owned, right? It's how they loved. This is what leads, leads to life of great significance. What's interesting in this story is that the author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does something really awesome and thought-provoking. Did you notice what the name of the other 
redeemer, the other kinsman redeemer is. Did you notice his name in this passage? You didn't because his name isn't ever mentioned. He's called friend or redeemer. And friend is a very, very gracious translation. That in the Hebrew, actually an idiom is used. The idiom is the Hebrew term poloni almoni. It's kind of fun to say, poloni almoni. And it literally means so-and-so or what's his name. It literally means that. Is that not awesome? And so it's like, hey, friend. But really, it's just the author's like, hey, we're not saying his name. So hey, so-and-so. Because this guy's name isn't going to be remembered throughout all history. And yet, isn't it interesting? What's this guy concerned about? I can't, I can't give loyal love because it's going to come at cost to myself. My inheritance, my name won't, or it will be jeopardized. It will be impaired if I give. And then there's Boaz. No concern for his name. No concern for his personal stuff. He said, I'm going to love. I'm going to love the widow. I'm going to love like God's loved me. I'm going to love. I'm going to love my close relatives. Give, give, give. Selfless, costly. Name remembered for all time. In fact, look how this book ends. It says, now these are the gener- or actually back to verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David, like King David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And Boaz is forever remembered in the line of David the great-great-grandfather, or the great-grandfather of King David. Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. But it doesn't even stop there. If you would go to Matthew chapter 1 and look at verse 1, the first gospel in the life of Jesus Christ, the very first sentence that you see in the New Testament is this sentence right here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. If you keep reading that genealogy found in chapter 1, you're going to see that both Boaz and Ruth's name are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. The two people who showed incredible, loyal love, God's loyal love, and extending it to one another, their names are forever remembered and tied to King David, the most famous person in the Old Testament, maybe only second to Moses, and to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. Friends, you want to live a life of significance? You want to live for something more as we started the service off with? Give, extend God's loyal love to others. It's not about getting. It's not about acquiring. It's not about living for your name and getting and taking and winning and all. It's about loving. She said, like, this is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like, this is what it comes down to. Let us love with the love that God has given us. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. These are Paul's words in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Like, this is what it's about for us. How are you doing? Are you a Poloni Almoni? Are you living like a so-and-so? Are you loving people with a costly, selfless love in response to the costly, selfless love that God has shown us? This is the message of the book of Ruth.
that we see in this, in this powerful book that God's providentially at work in our life, even when the circumstances of our life seem to point against it. That because God is a God of love and kindness, of steadfast love, he's always at work to bring about his good will, his love and kindness in our lives. Friends, believe that. Hold on to that. We talked about that in week one, and, and good friend Blake came up to me and said, like, that just reminds me exactly why I got this tattoo. And she starts telling this story, and it's just powerful. And so I said, Blake, I need you to come up and tell that story. And she was willing. So, Blake, I, I want you to come up here, and I, I know we're running late on time, but you t- tell this story. Like, this is stuff we need to, like, grab onto, friends. And so thanks for, thanks for doing this, Blake. Hey, guys. Um, so I'm Blake. I know all of you have seen me, but I probably haven't met you, and I'm apologizing in advance. I don't seem it, but I'm actually uh, an introvert who's pretty terrified of just walking up and saying, Hi, I'm Blake. (laughs) So consider this your Hi, I'm Blake. Um, (laughs) um, You know, Jake and I did talk a little bit, and he asked me to share my story because it's interesting, um, at least me, because it's mine, but... um, coming through my story and being kind of on this side of it, it's really important to me that my past and my decisions, both good and bad, mostly bad, can be used to show that anything that has come out of that that's good is God's glory and God's providence. And and so that's kind of why um, I agreed to do this is because part of my story is showing that God can redeem broken lives because mine was broken. Um, a lot, <laughs> more than once. Um, so I grew up in church. I was the worship leader for my high school youth group. I had a uh, recording contract with Word Music. I was on KSBJ. I was going around touring churches, um, giving my testimony at 17 years old. I was like an up-and-coming Christian artist and all this. And, um, you know, multiple generations growing up in the same church. And um, brother was called into ministry. He's a pastor all these things. And then at 19, my freshman year of college, my boyfriend of several months decided that no, no, no meant yes and decided to take my virginity without my permission. And that was the beginning of a very abusive, both um, emotionally and physically spiral in our relationship. Um, I allowed him to abuse me physically and mentally. And I was so ashamed of that, that I thought surely God would be ashamed of me too. Cause that's not who I am, right? Like it's not how I was raised. It's not what I know to be right. And, and how can I let this person hit me and how can I let him treat me like this? And, um, my self-worth was in the tank would probably be the easiest way to say that. Um, probably a bit of an understatement. Um, but you know, Again, because I was so ashamed and I I knew I was letting myself, again, like this is the warped place that abuse puts people in. I thought that it was my fault. And so I thought surely God would be ashamed of me too. Um, I ran. I I thought if God's ashamed of me, well, then I'm going to turn my back on him. Clearly God wasn't ashamed of me. This was in my head. And so I ran for eight years. I was a belly dancing, pot smoking hippie, to be quite honest about it. I thought I was a pagan. I thought I was a Wiccan. I thought I was a Taoist. I mean, I thought all sorts of things, but I knew God existed. I just didn't want any part of him because I thought at that point after eight years, like he's turned his back on me. So I'm going to turn my back on him. And through that entire time, I felt alone. Like there were days that I didn't 
eat because I didn't have money. There were days where I didn't have power in my house because I couldn't pay the bill to get it turned on for a couple more days. And then, you know, it just went on and on and um, lost a really good job, had a nervous breakdown, like really just rock bottom, right? Um, very alone and felt very betrayed in all of it because, you know, here's my little brother who's like successful and a preacher and he's published a book at 25. And I'm like, how lovely for you. I'm going to go over here and work in a bar as a cocktail waitress and make a quarter tip on a beer. Like, thanks. You know, it just wasn't really where I needed to be. And it was through God's providence that, um, I finally got a job waiting tables instead of actually cocktail waitressing at a pool hall, which was a step up for me. And, um, there was someone there that went to a hill country church plant, um, called origins and she just worked on me and, you know, served God by knowing that I was one of his lost children that needed to come back home. And so she got me there and I, um, started paying attention to God again. And, um, during that time in my life, I was delivered out of a lot. Um, there was a community and support around me at that church. You know, two of those people are still here and I'm still very good friends with them. And, and it was that loyal love from that community and the support from the community that God put in my life and, and God continuing to work on me that I was delivered out of that. And I came into a place where I got a good job that changed my life's trajectory. I had a community around me. I had friends around me, like I said, that I'm still very close to some of them. And um, it, it really just put me on a good path. Life's going along. I'm, you know, great job. Life is happy. I'm engaged. All things are wonderful. And in 2012, 2013, I had a broken engagement. I had um, left a church that, got kind of bureaucratic and I don't want to get into those details, but it wasn't a place that I felt was home and community for me. Um, I was in a job that didn't value me and actually was kind of backstabbing and it was just not, not a good place. Um, kind of end of 2012 into 2013 was a, a tough spot for me. And then, um, things started to get better. And then at the end of 2013, I was diagnosed with lupus Yay, something else. Um, and, and so it was, it was a hard time, right? Like I felt very alone. I was like, I'm never going to be married before I'm 30. You know, like these silly goals we put in our heads and, and all these things. And, and now I've got this chronic illness that's going to cause me joint pain and deterioration and fatigue and brain fog. And I could potentially lose my ability to be me later in life. And it's this very scary thing. And, and throughout this really hard time, the first time I went through the hard time, right, I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran and I hated God for it. And the second time I had allowed God to remain important and he, um, he, he stayed important to me. I stayed in communication with him. And a lot of my growth in that time was that God doesn't just want us to say thank you. He wants us to talk to him. And whether you're angry at him, yelling at him, mad at him, it doesn't matter. It's still better to talk to him about it. And that was the difference this time because this time I knew, God, I know you're going to bring me through this. It really sucks. But I know that you're going to bring me through it. And I and I allowed him to stay part of it with me. And because of that, I always had a sense of peace about it. I'm not saying it was easy, but I had peace and I had faith and I wasn't alone. And I always 
always through all of it felt supported by a lot of the people sitting in this room. Um, a lot of you guys were really instrumental in being such a strong community. And again, serving God through your love for me in some of these really hard times going through that broken engagement and, and the lupus diagnosis and coming out of that, you know, remaining faithful. Um, I just felt that peace in the storm and that was the difference, right? That was, that was the difference. And I, I learned from that, you know, a year almost to the day after I was in the hospital, you know, starting my diagnosis of lupus, a year I married my husband and became a stepmother. And three weeks before that, I got the best job in my life and I love it and I'm valued and I'm doing what my heart is passionate about. And I have felt so supported by this community and and what all of this has taught me is not that if you remain faithful, God will give you something good because I feel like that's a very karma approach to it. I feel like what this has taught me is life is always going to have ups and it's always going to have downs. And the difference is that through the downs, rather than turning my back on God and becoming bitter, I need to remain faithful to him and know that he always has something better for me. Every time, no matter what, no matter how hard it gets, he always brings me through it. He always takes care of me. He always has something better for me. And that kind of comes to the tattoo that I got. You guys can see I have a semicolon on my wrist and I'm a grammar nerd. I'm in marketing. I write a lot. And as you know, a semicolon is used at what could have been the end of the sentence, but instead there's more. And so that's the significance of that, that there's always more. And knowing that in the hard times and knowing that God always has something better on the other side has has allowed me to be in a place where I don't feel like my faith in him is dependent on whether life is going well. Because it's about the relationship and keeping that open and knowing that because of his providence, it is always going to get better. So thanks for listening. <laughs> Friends, I wanted to end with that because I feel like that would be a real similar thing if Naomi was up here. I think her story would sound real similar. And at all time, all of us at certain times are going to have those moments. And if we just pause, if you put the period at the end of the sentence instead of semicolon, you would arrive to the conclusion, look, based on my circumstances, it's clear that God is either not real, he doesn't love, he doesn't care. That his love is not loyal. But friends, that's not true. And your circumstances are way too fra- fragile to base your understanding of who God's, ca- God's character and God, how God feels, his posture towards you. Do not base it on that. Instead, look to his promises. Because has he promised he is a Lord that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, loyal love. This is our God. Hang on to that during these hard times. And remember that the, the main way we know that is because of what Jesus did for us. That the greatest act of, lo- of costly, selfless love of all time was displayed on the cross. For God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in the story of Naomi, what we see is that the one who he, she could say, God's hand is against me because he took my husband from me and he took my sons from me. God would say, death was never a part of the original plan. It's not what I wanted. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son to die so that death itself would die. So that sin itself would end. 
Jesus is going to take your place out of my great love for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, we know that God loves us and his love for us is loyal. The main thing, the thing that we can always hang on to is the cross. So let's hang on to that. And we'll see time and time again that his love is loyal. And then let that love, the incredible love that he has for us, not just compel, but yes, compel us to love others, but also know that his great love for us is the very means that enables us to love others, to extend his loyal love to others. Because if we leave here and say, man, that's awesome. We, We need to love people like God's loved us. We'll go out here and our love will not remain loyal. We'll have short spurts of love, but we're not gonna be able to do it out of our own power to love people costly and selflessly for the long haul, steadfast, loyal, faithful. We don't have that in us. I wish we did, but we don't. But if you have the Spirit of God living in you, because you've been adopted into the family of God, because you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then one of the things you're promised is you're in Christ, and you're a partaker of the divine nature, and God's Holy Spirit lives in you. And you have the power because of God in you to love like God loves because God wants to love through you and he's placed himself in you. So friends, let us leave here with rejoicing over how God has loved us and committing to love others, but not out of our own power, but compelled by his love and enabled by it. And let's go love. This week, friends, this week is the week leading up to Easter. This is a great week to love people. Certainly not the only week to love people, but this is a great week in front of us. In fact, today, and I'm going to have to make a hard call here, but like we're, we're going to skip out on taking communion this morning, but we're going to take communion together on Friday night at our Good Friday worship service. And we're going to take, we're in a time of prayer and communion and, and worship. And I want to invite all y'all to come out to Brikerwood's right here at 6.15 Friday night, 6.15 to 7.15. It's going to be an awesome time of, of, of remembering what Christ has done for us and celebrating. Because we know how the story ends. We'll, we'll remember his death on Good Friday, but we know what we're celebrating on Sunday. He rose again, right? So it's going to be an awesome night, and we encourage you to come here. But this week, guys, I want to encourage you, even today, we've talked about this for a couple weeks now, today, go invite people to join us on Sunday. We've got invitations sitting on this table here, a stack of them. I'd ask that you pick up a couple of them. And even today, because I know the week's going to get busy and we're going to forget. Today, could you set aside an hour and go pass out some invitations to your neighbors? Or tomorrow at work, could you set aside 15 minutes before work and hand out some invitations to friends and just say, hey, will will you come worship with us? So they could hear about the God who loves them. And so let me pray for y'all, pray for our offering, and then uh, give God this glory for his incredible love for us. Let's pray. Father, God, we do just rejoice in your love. Your love demonstrated so clearly and so powerfully through Christ, his death on our behalf, that he would give us a selfless and, and great costly love. And Lord, we look forward to meditating on that throughout this week celebrating it on Friday night and on Sunday morning as we celebrate his resurrection. And may you be honored 
this week as we just stand in awe of your incredible love for us. And God, then also may you be honored in how we extend your love to others. God, may you move us to do so that when it feels costly and we're scared of what people might think or if it's going to cost us reputation or if it's going to cost us time or if it might cost us money, God, that we'd be willing to do so and enabled to do so by your spirit working powerfully in us, that we would love people like you loved us, that people would be moved and broken lives redeemed. God, would you do that? Would you do it through us, each one of us here today? Father, thank you for how you provide for the ministry of this church. And we, the money we're going to give today, God, may, may you use it to further your kingdom and bless people, be another expression of your great love to our community. So God, we love you. We thank you for how you love us. And it's in light of that, just, again, captured in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.